Welcome to Real Estate Investing Unscripted, a podcast from Fund That Flip, where we explore some of the most creative, innovative, and inspiring stories from the real estate investor community. With expert tips and success stories you won't hear anywhere else, you'll come away with inspiration on how to improvise in the unscripted world that is real estate investing so that you can dominate your next real estate deal. Now your host, founder and CEO of Fund That Flip, Matt Rodak. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Real Estate Investing Unscripted. I'm your host, Matt Rodak, founder and CEO of Fund That Flip. And joining me today from Boston, Massachusetts is Justin Silverio, owner of JS2 Homes, which is a real estate investment company and also owner of Open Letter Marketing, which is a direct mail company that specializes in providing services to other real estate investors. So, so I met Justin a few weeks back at an event down in Philadelphia, um, got to learn about what he's up to. And I just, just had to get him on the show to share his story and all the cool stuff he's up to. So with that, welcome to the show, Justin. Thank you so much, Matt. It's great to be on. Yeah, love having you. So, so you run two businesses. One is a real estate investment company, and one is a service provider to other real estate investment companies. So, tell us a little bit about yourself, kind of your background, how you got into the business, and then um, generally, like, what do the two companies do? Yeah, sure. So, um, I guess my interest in real estate started back when I was younger. Um, my father was a general contractor for about forty-five years, and I always had an interest in what he was doing, building homes and uh, taking something from uh, raw materials and building a you know beautiful home that people love to live in. But I never wanted to be a contractor. Um, never wanted to have to deal with that and kind of using my hands all the time. So, But I always had a fascination of it. Then fast forward in 2000, I would say 8, 2009, 2010, you know, those flipping shows came on. And I went the route of um, went to college. Um, I was working in the accounting field and I numbers. So when I saw those flipping shows, I said, Hey, this is a great opportunity to get into something where I can use the numbers and also the construction and kind of bridge that gap and bring those two together, my two passions and really start something out. So, um, in 2011, I kind of pitched it to my father and said, Hey, would you be interested? You take on the construction side. I look at the numbers, find the deals. We'll partner on these, um, properties, fix them up and sell them. He said, absolutely. If that, if that helps you out, I'm all in. So, um, so immediately got great support from him, uh, learned construction along the way. And he told me at a point in time when you feel comfortable and you want to kind of go on your own, just buy me out of the company and I'll support you from here on out with any funding, whatever you need. So that's kind of how I got started in real estate. It was just, I don't know if I would have got started if I didn't have someone like my father that knew construction really well. I might, may have just teamed up with another investor with a you know construction background, but that's kind of how I got started in in real estate. And um, I was primarily focused on rehabbing entry level homes because I wanted the lowest amount of risk, smallest amount of dollars um, out, um, just to shield myself. And over the years, I as I got comfortable with that product, I moved up to mid market um, homes, then high end home renovations, then high end new construction. And now uh, what I'm doing and focused on is uh, wholesaling. And um, I guess 10% of what I do is condo conversions, multifamily condo conversions in the city of Boston. In 2016, I left my full-time job. So it was about five years that I was doing real estate part-time while having a full-time job, which was with the wife and kids. Uh, that was extremely mm -hmm. tough. Um, 
but uh, I jumped ship in 2016 and that's when I launched Open Letter Marketing. Most of my deals always came from direct mail because I always wanted to be in the driver's seat of finding my deal flow. So I got really good at, at direct mail and just getting myself to stand out for my competition. Um, so I had a very unique approach than what anybody else offered on the market. And uh, so I knew it worked well for me. And I wanted to offer these products and services to other real estate investors because I felt I, I knew it worked. And I knew it worked better than what was out there. And I really wanted to offer this product. So um, I started Open Letter Marketing in 2016. And it's been growing um, ever since then. Very cool. So um, that's neat. So you, you started with your dad back in 2011. Is, is, he, is he still the partner? Have you guys kind of moved along? Or what's the status of that now? Yeah, in 2000, the end of 2014, I believe it was end of 2014, I bought him out of the company, um, which he was, he was fine with because um, that was the, the whole intent was for him. I mean, he supported my, both of my parents were very supportive of me and my brother. And my brother owns his own company. So they did whatever they could to help us out. Yeah. Um, and so his goal was just to get me up and running. Um, teach me about construction and then let me kind of fly on my own. But even still to this day, I mean, he funds in a lot of my, he funds a lot of my deals as an investor in a lot of the deals, walks through the properties all the time. I mean, he just loves it. Yeah, that's cool. So, so family businesses can always be, uh, you know, rife with peril, I guess, if you will. <laughs> it sounds like, it sounds like it, it, for the most part was, uh, was, you know, a good experience for you. Do you, do you have a, a point or two that you could share that you think was, you know, um, important for you guys to, to, to be successful? Um, yeah, I mean, over the years I've had, you know, a number of partnerships. Um, most didn't work, work out, uh, for better or for worse. Um, but the one with my father was absolutely the best I've ever had. Um, I think it was more from like, the level of trust and um, just we had a very common goal of what we wanted to do. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it was just early on in my career. So just uh, learning and taking in everything that I could from him. And um, yeah, I think, I think mostly it was the trust and how much we knew what we were trying to do and we could depend yep. on each other and we had separate roles and we knew which lane we had to be in yep. uh, to get the job done. So trust, aligned incentives, and uh, staying in your lane, I think, is important for any partnership, yep. but probably particularly with with family. Yeah, and over the years, I mean, I would say one big thing with partnerships. Um, one partnership ended with one of my partners, but it actually ended really great. Um, and the re the only reason that is because when we set up the partnership, we looked down the line and said, "All right, what does this look like if we do, you know, break apart? What does that look like?" The most important thing is we remain friends. So how does that work? So we actually engineered the exit before we even actually got started. Smart. And I'll really tell smart. you, uh, and we had a deadline on if it's not working th this month by this uh, this time frame, then we're going to kind of go our own ways. And it and it worked out pretty well. And we're still friends to this day. And that was actually a successful kind of divorce. Yep. That's what you want. That's why they have contracts, not for when they go well, but for when they, uh, for when they Absolutely. don't, I guess. Right. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> All right, cool. So I'd like to focus a little bit more on the direct mail side of, of the business. So, um, for those that maybe aren't as familiar with this marketing strategy, maybe just give us the 60 seconds on like what it is and like how it works and you know, why it's, you know, an effective way to, to develop lead flow. 
Sure. Um, one of the biggest reasons I love direct mail is because you are in full control of your deal flow and you can target um, people exactly who you want to mail to. So if you're driving down the street and you see a, you know, a dilapidated house, you can actually get the address and send them a mail piece. So it's a great way to go direct to seller because, I mean, in today's market, competition is extremely high. So the chance of finding deals on the MLS, um, you know, depending on wholesalers, real estate agents, that's extremely difficult to kind of build your business on. And not only that, it's difficult to get really good spreads because you usually have middle people in the way of um, getting more of the profit. Mm-hmm. So direct to seller marketing gives you the opportunity to be right in front of the seller uh, where there's less competition. You can build rapport and you can get uh, better deals. So this is literally finding a dilapidated house or, or finding a list of potential, you know, homes where the owner may want to not own it anymore. And then sending them literally a physical piece of mail. Yes, That's absolutely. It. Yeah. <laughs> most of the people that we're milling to are in, you know, and, and this is kind of the spiel that I give to a lot of the uh, prospective sellers that call in is, you know, we're not the best buyers for everyone, but the people that we are uh, buyers for um, is where your property is in need some sort of work. You know, it mm-hmm. might be outdated. Uh, we can come in and add some value. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the other situation is when, um, you know, you're going through some sort of situation um, that's a little bit unique you don't want to list your market on the, uh, the MLS. Um, you just want a quick, easy solution. So those are, that's the exact people and demographic that I look for. So, so let's talk about that a little bit, right? So I think it's called list building, right? And having a good list of people that fit that criteria that are, are good sellers for you, where you can offer them a lot of value. How do you go about building those lists and, and, you know, why is it important that you have a good list and kind of what's your advice to people on, on building good lists? Um, you know, there's, there's two, um, there's two thoughts on this. Um, those that have a smaller marketing budget, um, have one way to do things. The people with the larger marketing budget, um, they're not so focused on getting niche lists and they'll use more general lists. So what I mean by general lists is they'll go on to like list source and pull equity owners, absentee owners, you know, the lists that are very easy to pull. And they do that because they can mail to a lot of people. They have really big budgets so they can send out uh, marketing to just, uh, you know, a huge volume of people. Not everybody's kind of in that position. So for me, and it's always been my train of thought is that I focus a lot of my time on list building because I never stop mailing to somebody unless they sell the house or call in and say, take me off your list. So a lot of the people that I buy properties from, I've been mailing to for two, two years, three years, four years, and time and circumstance just changed. And they're calling me because I've been mailing so long and, you know, I've built a lot of rapport with them. So it will actually take me two to three months to build my own lead list. And the way that I do that is I will pull about 15 to 20 different lists. So that could be a range from general lists, like I mentioned, your absentee owner, your equity mm-hmm. list. Um, and then it's more, and then it's also niche lists. So driving for dollars, tax liens, probate, inherited. Uh, we have uh, you know, a firehouse list. Uh, that I can pull. So I pull all of those leads into one spreadsheet, and then I have a program that will 
um, layer the leads. So it'll identify which property or which properties are on multiple lead lists. Hmm. Okay. So the reason I want to do that is because a property that's on an equity list might not be a great lead, but now if it's an on equity list, it's on a driving for dollars list, a tax lien list in an absentee list, that lead just got way higher quality than if, if I just identified that it was on an equity list. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I can segment my, my lead list into high quality, medium quality, and low quality. Um, because when you're marketing, you want to make sure that you're spending your money in the right places. So I'll spend more time and energy on the, the um, prospects that are in the high quality bucket and not so much on the uh, people that are in the low quality bucket. So it's kind of, it's a long process, but I spend a lot of money on every one of my leads. So I want to make sure that anybody that gets onto my lead list, because I'll never take them off unless they call or uh, sell their home. So I want to make sure that I start off with a good lead list in the beginning. And also it. it leads to a much higher success rate when you, um, when you do market to them. Got it. So are you, do you have like multiple, so if you're, you're building one list over two to three months, right. Um, and then you you, you start marketing to that list. I'm assuming then you've got, I don't know, 10 or 12, cause you've been doing this a while, other lists that are kind of still on some type of a, a, a follow-up campaign strategy. So you're launching a new list, call it once a quarter. So you may have four different lists going, um, four new lists started each year on top of older lists you've started in, in previous years. Is that kind of how it works? I basically just, I never get rid of the leads. I will just add to my lead list. Okay. Got it. So they'll all roll into basically one large campaign, but I'll have different batches. So if my, if my lead list, my lead list is about 25,000. So I'll mail 25,000 over, you know, six weeks. Got so it. as and I start to add new leads in, um, or remove them because they sold their homes, then it'll just kind of change around the the number of leads that I'm sending in each batch. And are, are people getting the same messaging? So if, you know, someone's been on that list for a year or two and someone's just being added to the list, is it a, is it a different message or is it kind of the same, the same message to all 20 some thousand people it's going out to? Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, I have a five mailer sequence that basically rotates. So they get a different letter every month for five months. Um, then there's a, a, a pause for a month and then they get the five mailer sequence again. Got when it. I started, I was sending different mailers to depending on what lead list that they were on. So for instance, if they were in a probate list, it might talk a little bit about, you know, how we can help out a probate. But what I found is I actually, um, got people offended a lot more when I sent that message through a letter mm. rather than talking to them over the phone, um, and questioning them about it because it seems much more authentic when I'm talking to them and it seems more like a script where they don't get as offended. Um, so I started creating, you know, all of my messaging for people is, um, pretty similar unless, uh, there's, you know, certain areas in the market. Like for instance, in Boston, I might talk about, you know, something, something, I might have a different language in Boston because they're kind of a different uh, group of people that I'm going after rather than the single families outside of Boston. Got it. Super interesting. Um, so give us, give us some metrics, right? So you, you're sending out, you know, 20,000 pieces a month. Um, you know, if, if someone's thinking about getting started uh, with this strategy, what's, what's kind of like a good 
um, number of pieces that should be sent out, you know, on a, on a minimum basis, um, you know, to, to have at least a, a large enough sample size, if you will, to see if, you yeah. know, it's, it's working or not. What I would recommend if somebody really wants to get into direct mail and, and whatever type of marketing it is anyways. Okay. So direct mail, like just at the very beginning, like if you have, um, direct mail costs money. Okay. So if people have more time than money, do something that you can focus your time on. If you have more money than time, then direct mail is a great option um, because it can be automated and very streamlined. So when you do, um, you know, start to work on projects, you don't have to think about the marketing. It keeps going out. You keep on getting that deal flow coming in. But for somebody to get started, I would say a really good range and um, is about 3,000 leads on your list. And you're sending those two to 3,000 on a monthly basis. And what I tell people is you want to make sure that you set yourself up to know that you're going to be marketing for about six to eight months before you're going to start to get deals. Now, I've seen a lot of people get deals on the first mailer that they ever send out of maybe even 200. But I want to set people up for success and say, just keep in mind, you want to mail six months consistently, um, have that deal flow come in because it does take time to build rapport. Most of my deals are going to happen after the fifth touch. So that's why I say you have to kind of have the mindset and, um, you know, the, the budget in mind for six to eight months down the road. Got it. I think that's like the, the, in, in the marketing world, there's some statistics, right. Where you need like seven impressions to convert Mm -hmm. a customer. So that's that's kind of in in line with that. I was just going to say the the biggest thing that I always tell people is, um, do you, does anybody, when I, you know, when I give presentations, I say, does anybody not know who Coca-Cola is? And obviously nobody raises their hand and okay. Why do they still market? They do it because they're building their brand. They want to keep on, you know, top of mind, all of that. So you have to do the same thing with your marketing. Um, you know, to build our deal flow, we have to be really good at marketing. And I think a lot of investors don't really focus a lot of their attention to it. But the big difference is what, when I see a lot of the, top investors who use us um, around the country, they're, they're keeping track of all the KPIs. They're focused on their marketing. They're changing things up. They're always looking at their, um, you know, just all their numbers. Yep. So let's talk a little bit about that, right? So let's say we're going to, we're going to get started with um, some direct mail. We've built our lists. Um, we've got our 3000 leads. We've got our budget for six to eight months. The other big piece of this, right, is you've got to be prepared to start handling some inbound phone calls, right? Mm-hmm. So what, is, what does that look like? Like if I'm sending out 3000 pieces and maybe it takes me a couple months to get going, how many calls should I start, you know, should I expect to start receiving? So depending, it depends on your market, but um, I mean for, and it depends what you're sending out. So it depends on market, how good your lead list is, where you're sending it out. But on average, um, you can expect anywhere from a half percent to a percent, 1% uh, response rate on that. Okay. And that's pretty good. A half to 1% is what you're looking mm-hmm. for. So yep. got it. Okay, cool. But still a decent amount of, of phone calls that you're going to have to, if you're doing, if you're doing 3000 leads, that's a decent amount of phone calls. You got to be ready to start taking. Is there, is there a best practice around like how you set that up? Have you guys set yes. up like phone lines, answering services? Like what's, what's a good, a good way to be thinking about scaling that up? Um, so one is that they don't want to send all 3000 at once. Uh, what I would recommend is they batch that out over four weeks. 
So um, don't send all 3,000 out because you're going to get a bunch of phone calls all at once. You're not going to be able to handle it. You're not going to be able to get back to people. And that is just absolutely wasting money. So I would recommend that they send um, a portion of that list. So over four weeks, they're sending to the 3,000. So the calls will be more steady. Um, so that's the first thing. For um, new investors that have not gone direct to seller, I 100% highly recommend that they take the calls themselves. That's probably one of the most important skills that you can build um, as a real estate investor is talking to sellers. And when I started, I was, I was terrible and I missed a lot of deals <laughs> because you have to kind of learn as you go. But as you learn, um, you can start getting a lot more deals than other people aren't able to get because you built a really good, you can build a rapport with um, sellers. You know how to talk to them, negotiating. Those are all like very valuable skills. Yep. And quite honestly, um, like now I've been, I, you know, I've, there's been situations where I've gotten deals. I was not the highest price at all. Um, but they still went with me because they liked and trusted me. And the yep. only way that I was able to do that is because I practiced talking to sellers. Now, when you start to scale, you can obviously hire acquisitions um, specialists and you can then train them on what, how you want them to talk to sellers. Um, so that's kind of the, the progress there. As far as taking calls, I mean, Google Voice, um, I use that for at least five years, but now I use, um, I use CallRail. Got it. Calls. It has really good KPIs. You can record the calls if you want. Um, there's a lot of options and it also integrates into my CRM system. Got it. Very cool. Um, so talk, talk, talk to us a little bit. So you said, you know, it's important that people have a budget. Um, you're going to want to be able to do this six to eight months. Is there a range in terms of like cost per piece, um, that these things typically fall into? And I understand there's a lot of variables there, but if people are trying to start to think about, man, does this fit into my strategy and, and, do I have the money to make this investment? What, what should they be thinking about from a budgeting perspective? Yeah. Depending on like for us, we're, we're open letter marketing is actually one of the only ones that actually have mailing campaigns. What that means is that you can set up in the beginning. I want to do a five month mailing campaign similar to what I was just talking about. Mm-hmm. And they basically set it and forget it. So if they did something like that, our pricing is based on how much they order. And if they're doing first class or standard class, so depending on how many leads that they have. Now, if they have you know a lead list of 2,000, but they want to do a five mailer campaign, now they're going to be in like the 10,000 mailer bracket. Mm-hmm. So their cost is going to go down. So on average, I would say, depending on first class or standard, anywhere from like 60 cents to 80 cents, they can expect per piece. Got it. So be thinking about that guys. I think it's a good time of the year as people are starting to think about budgeting for 2020 and, and how you're going to be growing your business. If direct mail is not a, P, a part of your, your strategy, um, maybe it should be, um, particularly as it's, uh, it, it continues to get more competitive out there on the buy side. So I know you guys do direct mail, but I think you do some other things that, that you found over the years, complement direct mail. Talk to us a little bit about what some of those strategies are and, and, you know, how do those, how do those actually, yeah, work to complement the direct mail? Sure. Um, so direct mail, as I mentioned before, has always been my baseline marketing approach, but as, um, you know, over the years, competition has increased a lot. More people have been getting into direct mail. However, direct mail has always still is a great resource for me. 
But what I found that can significantly impact the amount of responses that you're getting is layering other marketing strategies on top of it. So we, um, we offer ringless voicemail, um, IP marketing, and probably within, um, you know, in next year, we're going to start offering text messaging. And what we found is that by properly lay- layering these other marketing strategies, your response rate significantly increases. So what, are, um, what, what is ringless voicemail and RP, IP marketing for those? Sure. That- so ringless voicemail is when you record a voice message and you can blast that voice message out to um, many of your prospects. And basically that message just, it looks like they have a missed call and it automatically records a voice message on their phone. So it doesn't ring. It just goes right to their voicemail. Got it. Um, now there are legalities around that. So I would highly recommend anybody before they start to check into your, you know, um, check that out yourself with TCPA rules. Some investors are of the mindset that they don't do it at all because they don't want to mess around with it. Other people say, well, I'm not selling anything. I'm buying something. So those laws don't apply to me. So, and then I have, you know, there's a lot of people kind of in the middle. Um, So it's all up to the investor and kind of their comfort level on that. Get some legal advice. Sounds like. Absolutely. Yep. Yes. Yes. Um, Same with text messaging. Although there are some text messaging um, TCPA compliant texting platforms out there. Mm -hmm. We are starting to um, look at that and how we can offer that out to our customers because we have found that text messaging has been a very um, successful resource for, for me as well as other investors. Got it. And I'm assuming there's, there's data sets out there that are, you know, help you match addresses to phone numbers and, and something that you guys can maybe point people yes. in the right direction as well. Yeah, we, we offer skip tracing services. So what we're trying to do is we're really trying to build out, you know, a one-stop shop. So you can send your direct mail with us. We can skip trace your list for, for us, for you guys. And, um, and we can also set up the ringless voicemail, IP marketing, we're going to get into text messaging. Um, so there's a lot of stuff that we want to do internally. And before we even start offering services out, I have to t- test it in my own company. And I generally have other investors um, kind of beta test me to see what the are because I do not want to offer a less superior product or service to my customers. It, I know it, it has to work really well for me. So that on the back end is a lot of testing, like even on skip tracing. I mean, there's so many different services that I've tested out before I landed on the one that I, mm-hmm. that I really like. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm doing all that upfront testing instead of just, you know, throwing out, all right, we have skip tracing. I don't really care how this, you yeah. know, the quality of the data, because it's got to work. If, if I can't use it in my own business for JS2 homes, I don't want my customers to, to use the service either. Love it. Eating your own dog food, as they say, Absolutely. right? Yeah, cool. Absolutely. All right, guys, if you think this is cool and it makes sense and you're looking for new creative ways to, to, to develop leads, um, I think that my big takeaway here is like this is there's a lot of science behind this to get it right. Um, and unfortunately, Justin's done a lot of uh, a lot of the testing and figuring it out for you. So don't waste your money. Find an expert. Look up Justin. Look up his company. Um you know, have them help you find a lot of sweet deals and then call us up and we'll get you funded. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. All right, man. So the, the theme of the show here is real estate investing unscripted. Um, 
you know, as you know, from your, your experience being a real estate investor, things happen, right? You, you can read the books, you can go to the show, you know, the conferences, you can have mentors, uh, but inevitably you're going to eventually, if you're in this business long enough, stumble across a situation that you just couldn't have planned for or predicted. Mm-hmm. Um, can you share one of those stories, you know, with, with the listeners here and, and kind of what you learned from it and how that's impacted and changed how you think about things going forward? Sure. Um, man, and there's, <laughs> there's so many struggles and issues that happen. Um, but honestly, looking back at them, I'm grateful for every single one of them because I think it's the struggles and the issues that you have in your business that makes you stronger and makes you set up, set yourself up for more, better success. Totally. Um, one of the biggest issues that I had as a real estate investor is, um, and it, it was always dealing with contractors, you know, babysitting contractors and, you know, dealing with them and all, all the just day-to-day um, stuff with them. So I was working on this project um, and we hired, uh, I was with a partner at this time and we hired a, a contractor who we thought had good credentials and was doing a lot of great things and, you know, had a budget up front. Um, we went through, we got his insurance papers, we hired him, had a contract and come to find out he was not a contractor at all. He forged all of insurance, insurance documents. Um, he was hiring people off Craigslist that never did any construction to do a lot of the structural stuff to the house. So, um, it was a huge, huge issue. And luckily we found out, um, you know, before the walls were kind of the sheetrock was up or anything like that. And um, we found out that he was doing it to dozens of other real estate investors. And I actually had to go to court and he, he went to jail for about, I think, four or five years. Wow. It. But it really left us saying, shit, what do we do now? Like, we can't even, we have to get this all redone. Um, so that was like a big moment where I said, all right, if I'm going to start to work with contractors, I really need to put into place certain things and have basically a new contractor hiring package and do a lot of my due diligence up front, like calling the real estate agent, um, the insurance company and saying, Hey, do you, is this policy still active with you? Um, because if I did that, they would have said, we, we don't have a policy with this person. Yep. Um, so that really changed things around and made me much more, um, efficient and, um, you know, documented everything once a, once a contractor worked with us. That's uh, that's really scary, actually. <laughs> I guess yeah. it's, 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 some of this stuff is relatively easy to, to fake, I guess. Um, I mean, you can say the right things and, and make it look real, but wow. So the, the, the easy thing, right, is, is I think like verify, trust but verify is, is kind of what mm-hmm. I'm hearing. And you've got certain other third parties that they're representing are, are insuring them or bonding them or previous experience. And I think... Um, I've had some experience with this before too. It's like, oh man, it takes time to verify all of that yep. and get it right. But also it takes time to do work twice and a lot of money to do work twice. So, um, yeah, I would much rather take the time up front, verify, than have to deal with that again. I mean, that was a measure twice cut once as they say, <laughs> exactly. right? Your, your father That's probably exactly taught right. you that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for, thanks for sharing that. So Justin, if listeners want to get a hold of you, they're interested in, in kind of what you're up to and, and, want to want to know if maybe you can help them grow their business and find new deals. How do they get a hold of you? And, um, along those lines, what, what type of investor, um, is kind of the, the best investor for, um, for you and where you can add the most value? 
Sure. Um, so first off, they can, um, you know, check us out at openlettermarketing.com. They can get in touch with me and just shoot me an email at justin at openlettermarketing.com. I'm happy to chat or uh, talk to anybody and see if uh, we can help them out. Uh, best investor that um, kind of who we feel like we work really well with is, I, I guess, an investor that has that mindset. I mean, that, that marketing mindset of making sure that you're sticking with it for six to eight months. We get a lot of people that, you know, want to do a one-off or, you know, send out one mailer and then stop. And we try to avoid those type of um, investors. And the reason why is because we don't want to set them up for failure. We want to set them up for success. So if we have a feeling that somebody is going to do that, we'll talk to them about, um, you know, why it's important to be on a six, you know, to be consistent for six months Mm -hmm. because we want to set everybody up for success. That is the biggest thing. So really any investor, whether you're starting out with direct mail or you're, you know, doing a bunch of deals, both of them are great, but, you know, have an understanding that marketing is all about building rapport, um, building your brand and the deal flow comes with time. It's an investment really at the end of the day, it's an investment. 100%. Which means you don't get a return always right away. You've got to, yep. you've got to invest in, and stick with it in order to, to get that return. Right. Very cool. So check out openlettermarketing.com. Shoot Justin an email uh, at justin at openlettermarketing.com if you guys are interested. Um, thank you so much for being with us, Justin. I think kind of if I could summarize some of the, the key points here. Uh, we started talking about partnerships. I think, you know, very, very important advice here that is, it's, you know, sounds simple, but if you get it right, can make a big difference. Stay in your lane partner with people you trust, set clear expectations. And then, you know, I think what you said and and resonates with me is design your exit strategy when things are still good on the front end. Mm -hmm. Um, And the clearer you can make that, the cleaner it can be um, if things don't work out for whatever reason. Um, As far as, as far as marketing goes or, you know, direct marketing goes, it's a strategy that works. Obviously Justin's built a business around it and now wholesaling business. Uh, but it all, it is all about building and committing and, and having a budget and, and treating it like an investment. So if it's something you're going to do, go in eyes wide open, um, commit to the commit to the spend, and if you do so, pretty good shot you're going to you're going to kick up some deals. Um, along those lines, I think in something this has also resonated with me is you know don't treat all leads the same, right? You know, I like the idea of layering the lists, figuring out who your high priorities are, spending more time, more money there medium lists, allocating resources accordingly. And then the low lists, you may, may still have a, a gem in there, right? So you still kind of want to yep. spend some money there, but um, calibrate accordingly based on um, based on the likelihood of something actually popping popping from it. So those are my takeaways. Do you think I missed anything? Anything you'd like to add? No, I think that's, I think that's a great summary. Cool. Well, really appreciate this. Um, thanks for your time, Jess. I know you're a busy guy. Um, appreciate you jumping on here. And thank you all out there for listening to this episode of Real Estate Investing Unscripted. For more great resources or to get funding for your next project, head on over to fundthatflip.com. Otherwise, I look forward to, uh, to next time. Your host, Matt Rodak, signing off.